Morena, good morning. Couple of things. Um, I love the fact we were asked to pray for the young ones going to Easter camp. One of the things that you may not be aware of is that something like a third of the young folk at those camps will not be from Christian homes. So it's not part of their family heritage to follow the Lord. So this can be a really significant moment for them. So please do pray for them. We're going to have communion a little bit later, and I'd just like to invite you to take part. There is no entry hurdle. You're here to remember Jesus with us. You're part of our worship celebration. You are welcome. And the third thing, and funnily enough with Baptist pastors, there's always three things. Um, Gina, it's so lovely to have you back. Good to see you, mate. Well, today's sermon is the last word. It's Jesus' last word, the side of death. And I'm going to be reading from Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds had gathered there for the spectacle, saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. And I guess when I come to these words, I'm wondering, what was going on for Jesus? In his heart, what, what was he feeling? And much of the speculation is based, I guess, on the grisliness of crucifixion as a means of execution. We know that it was a horrific ordeal for someone to go through. And I've also tried to get my head around what it was like for Jesus based on what we know about his relationship with God, his Father. Because as the Son of God, Jesus had up until then walked in this unbroken relationship of mutual love and support and indwelling with his Father, empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And most of the time, these moving parts are unseen. But occasionally in Scripture, that Trinitarian veil, if you like, is lifted. And a good example of that is at Jesus' baptism in Luke 3, at the very start of his ministry. And Luke says this, Now when all the people were baptised, this is by John the Baptist, and when Jesus had also been baptised and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. 
And for my generation, when I hear the voice of the Father, he sounds a lot like Morgan Freeman. I don't know about you guys. In this picture, we see Jesus prayerful, obedient to the will of the Father, the Holy Spirit equipping him for service, and the Father, Father affirming his identity as his beloved Son and blessing him. And it's a little glimpse of how he lived the rest of his life. Now, if you fast forward to the cross, when Jesus became sin for our sake, Paul memorably described it in Galatians 3.13 as Jesus becoming a curse. A curse. In some mysterious way, separated from the love and fellowship that he had always known with his Father. Now, from his previous words, we know that he struggled with his loss of connection to God the Father, saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Gosh, that's a cry from the heart, if I ever heard one. But here at the very end, that struggle is over, and he commends or commits himself to his Father. Into your hands I commend my spirit, is taken from Psalm 31. It's what Jewish kids were taught to pray to God before they went to sleep. So for us, it's sort of the equivalent of, you know, you might remember this one, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Anyone ever heard that one before? Yeah, yeah, I see those hands. (laughs) After the pain, the anguish, the emotional oscillation of those previous painful six hours, it's a prayer of surrender to his Father. He's saying, in our lingo, Dad, I know you've got this. He's been through some of the stages of grief, despair, depression, anger, and now he's got through to a place of acceptance. The rage is over. He's returned to this simple childlike faith that Father's got it covered. Now that may be hard to relate to if your father was a bit of a dropkick or, as in my case, absent and only known through other people. But if that's you, try and imagine your best experiences of care and nurture, authority and guidance, and other regarding love all rolled into one person. That's a sort of an arrow towards the Father heart of God. It interests me too here that he's quoting Psalms again in his final hours. Was Psalm 31 what you read out before? Yeah, spooky. I don't see this as some sort of final teaching point. But it does reflect something about how the Psalms provided him with a language to express his feelings. Philip Yancey, that great writer, describes the Psalm as reflecting all the moods of faith. It's a great phrase, the moods of faith, from triumph through to despair, and all parts in between. Now, modern worship songs tend to major on the triumph of Jesus and our personal need for him 
Not so great on worship during the struggles of life, although that song that we were just singing is a very good one for that. I uh, heard of a church intern who resolved this year to avoid negative people who depress her. A few years ago, I met a 70-year-old Christian committed to what he called victorious Christian living, which as he talked about it, seemed to boil down to stick a smile on your face and just keep going, no matter what. Very similar to my mother's advice who grew up through the depression, which was not to dwell on the past. And by the past, she meant everything that happened up until yesterday and to look forward. It seems to me that all these things are ways of avoiding our pain, or at least trying to. Jesus got through to being able to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, because he allowed himself to feel the pain, anguish and loneliness, that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me over here, so strongly expresses. I read a commentator who suggested that Jesus clearly did not mean that he felt forsaken and wondered why he'd said it. Because if he did, he was clearly showing doubt and a lack of faith, which are sins, so he could not then have been the one perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world bonkers we need to do likewise in our struggles and our challenges if you have lived through abuse hard times in your marriage bullying at school or at work or at church you don't get through it by denying your reality its reality you have to go through the pain and find your voice just like Jesus did on the cross. That sort of growth is not easy. It's not an easy journey. But the fruit of it is life-changing. It's the free life that Jesus wants for all of us. When he said in Luke 4 that he came to set the captives free, that includes you, whether you are 16 or 90. New to faith or quite ripe? Also, like Jesus, it's not a self-indulgent freedom. It's the freedom to serve others, to be who you were created to be. Now, one thing that leaps off this page at me from the end of from this passage is he cried out with a loud voice. He had some energy. At the end of a 24-hour period in which he'd been whipped and beaten, then stripped, nailed to a couple of pieces of wood for the day. He was also struggling to speak, hence the, I thirst. How on earth was he able to do that, to speak in a strong voice? Where did that energy come from? Where does the love for enemies come from to say to his oppressors, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Where does the grace come from to be concerned about the thief next to him when you've got your own agony almost overwhelming you and to look after your mum as your lungs are slowly filling up with fluid? It seems superhuman, at least how you and I might understand humanity, how our best selves might react in that situation. Throw in the ability during his ministry to heal, to 
teach amazingly, to do other miracles at will, then clearly Mr. J. Christ is a superhero with supernatural powers, somewhat like this guy. And I guess the story would go that three days after the crucifixion, this guy throws off death, pushed the stone out of the way and charged out of the tomb, leaving Sebastian Aiton, Luke Usifer, and Brie Alzebub, it's Satan, Lucifer, and Beelzebub, bleeding on the floor, having given them an all good hiding for the last three days. The problem, though, I have with that understanding of who Jesus is, is that, as a phrase I'm fond of, it's like he's God with skin on, pretending to be one of us, but actually not really human. A bit like Superman, Clark Kent, who looks like one of us, but in fact is an alien from the planet Krypton. Yet if you read Hebrews, particularly Hebrews 2, it's clear that Jesus was one of us. In fact, he couldn't save us if he wasn't one of us. And John 1 describes Jesus as the word became flesh and dwelt among us, human flesh. Luke records his temptation by the devil in Luke 4, anguish in Gethsemane in Luke 22, both of which would be nonsensical if he was a deity in drag. And I could go on. So who is this Jesus? Well, there's a very important passage in Philippians that I want to read to you. And it's this. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The divine Son of God emptied himself of his divine abilities when he was incarnated as one of us. He did not have electricity coming out of his fingers. He could not see through walls or know what everyone else was thinking because he was truly one of us and we don't have those abilities and nor did he. Likewise, he did not have some sort of superhuman ability to cope with all that he was put through on the cross. And he did not resurrect himself single-handedly by rolling the stone away. During his ministry, he healed people by the power of the Spirit. He taught and prophesied by the power of the Spirit. He raised Lazarus from the dead by the power of the Spirit. He exercised demons by the power of the Spirit. And that was how he was able in John 14, 12 to say to his disciples, you will do greater things than I have done. Because the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead was there for them. And that same Spirit healed my GP friend Dean back in the 2013 Island Baptist Church camp as I laid hands on him. That is available to us. It was quite an experience for Dean and I. I'm not sure who was more surprised. Anyway, I digress. Consider the start of Jesus' ministry in Luke 3 and 4. We are told 
that at his baptism the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Then Jesus, full of the Spirit, is led out into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus then returns to Nazareth in the power of the Spirit and prophesies at the synagogue there that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Are you hearing a common thread? Spirit. Someone once asked me, who raised Jesus from the dead? And my answer was, Spirit. Romans 8.11 says this, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, dot, dot, dot. More completely, it's God the Father by his Spirit. But it's not Jesus using his superhuman abilities. God didn't have any. Okay, so how did the man Jesus cope with the cross? The veil isn't lifted here, so I can't say authoritatively, but I think the pattern of his earthly life would suggest that the Spirit enabled him to do that just as he would enable us to do it. And from church history, early church history, we know that one of the things that spurred the spread of the gospel in the Roman world was that many spectators were impressed by the calmness and the serenity by which Christians faced their martyrs' death. The Spirit strengthened them to get through their ordeal, and people noticed. One of my lecturers at Kerry, a profound man, suggested that the Spirit mediated the presence of the Father to Jesus on the cross, and the presence of Jesus to an anguished father missing his son. That would also be consistent with that pattern of father, son, and spirit acting in concert together. 2 Corinthians 5 says that the God, the Father, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So in some mysterious way, the Father was in Christ on the cross. Now these verses from Luke 23, the best way I can think of describing them is like this. We're standing on a riverbank, looking across to the other side. An outline of what, which can be seen through the mist, but there's a lot of haze around, so no details visible. Now those of us on the north side of 50, have grown up in a culture that thought that there was a definite answer to everything and it will be some sort of natural cause and effect relationship. We might not know all the answers yet, but one day we will and it will make sense. And that is the faith of post-war modernistic Western society, including his church. Now Winston Churchill described Soviet Russia in 1939 as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Great turn of phrase, that guy. Christian faith is a bit like that too. Nowhere more so than at the point where Jesus died on the cross. Mystery abounds here. And we Protestant moderns don't like mystery. We like rationally thought out compelling answers that we can put into little booklets. Catholics, on the other hand, are much more uncomfortable with the answer something like, well, shamish, it's just a mystery, to be sure, to be sure. That's fine. But questions at this point, standing on that riverbank, 
how come without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness of sin? I don't know. Did God die? Did the eternal divine trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit somehow become a binary for those three days while Jesus was in his tomb? Where was Jesus on Easter Saturday? Was he dead in the grave? The Apostles' Creed suggests that he descended into hell. Peter seems to suggest in 1 Peter 3 that he had some sort of preaching gig down there. Or was he in heaven with his Father? Jesus rises on Sunday as our resurrected Lord in a renewed resurrection body, which Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, that is the sort of prototype of our resurrection to come. What sort of life is that? It's not playing touch rugby in the clouds, but Jesus appeared to them in a locked room. So it's not quite like our experience of life either. And yet he had nail holes in his wrists. So his experience and his scars, they went with him. I I could go on, but rest easy, I won't. I cannot tell you definite answers to all those questions, And if others tell you they can, they're kidding both you and themselves. But this I know. Jesus was born, lived, and died for all of us. That we would become reconciled to God and part of God's community of love. Jesus understands our joy and our pain because he's experienced them as a man, real man, who lived amongst us. On the cross, our sins were forgiven. This can lose impact because we say it all the time, but it's huge, absolutely huge. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus from conception to resurrection is living with all of us who have turned to Jesus in repentance and faith. That's also huge. That despite the shortcomings of our earthly fathers, we have a perfect heavenly father who wants the absolute best for us. That our prayers and our worship individually and corporately are taken by the Spirit to the Son who was always interceding for us with the Father all the time. That's what it is to be the great high priest. That our hope in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come is as solid as a very solid thing. These things we know. These things we can build our lives on. We don't need to have the answers to every question. Striving to understand is creditable, don't and worthwhile, don't hear me saying otherwise. But so is faith that God ultimately has it covered. He's got us. Amen. Shortly we're going to take communion together in the presence of our Lord because as Stu said before, there are two of three of us here gathered in his name to worship. Now, communion has multi-dimensions, one of which is past, present, future. The past, we remember, we look back. We think about 
across these things that are on these doors. There's a future thing. We do this until he comes. We look forward. But there's also a sense of the present. We are sustained now by the day-by-day, moment-by-moment power and grace of the Holy Spirit. Just as we are sustained by food when we come together for a meal, this ancient ceremony points us to the reality that we need each other and God's provision to make it through life. And as I said before, if you're here to remember the Lord with us, you are most welcome to take part. Could the musicians please come up? I've got a song for us. You're getting more than a song, you're getting a reading as well. Um, The uh, passage I'm about to read is one of my favorite passages in the scriptures and and certainly one of my favorite psalms. And after I've read it, we're going to sing it. I think you'll get what it is very quickly. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they will comfort me. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that a wonderful passage? I just love it. So we're going to sing the 23rd Psalm, but we're going to sing it reflectively. So I'd, I'd ask you just to remain seated and just sing it from your hearts quietly. Thank you. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me lie in pasture green. He leads me by the still, still waters. His goodness restores my soul. And I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. And I will trust, I will trust, I will goodness will lead me home. 
He guides my ways in righteousness, and He anoints my head with oil, and my cup it overflows with joy. I feast on His purity. God, because on the night before he died, your son Jesus Christ took bread. When he'd given you thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me.
after supper. He took the cup, and when he had given you thanks, he gave it to them and said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant of my blood poured out for you. Do this as often as you drink it to remember me. Therefore, loving God, recalling now Christ's death and resurrection, we ask you to accept this our sacrifice of praise. Send your Holy Spirit upon us and our celebration, that we may be fed with the body and blood of your Son and be filled with your life and goodness. Strengthen us to do your work to be your body in the world. Unite us in Christ and give us your peace. Amen. I invite you to stand. We're going to conclude our service with the benediction. It's an Irish one. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face, the rains fall soft upon your fields, and until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Amen. Thank you.